Well, before I start with my two-hour sermon, I just want to thank everybody. I know some of you don't know who we are, and some of you are old, familiar faces, and it's really good to come back. It's good to see the church is still standing, but it's not just standing physically, it's standing spiritually, and the Word of God's still being preached, and you don't take that for granted nowadays, so it's, it's really, uh, really good to see that here, and uh, also we appreciate your support. You have been our support in church since we joined Village Missions uh, 15 years ago, and we went to upstate New York, that's where we've been for the last 13 years, and now we're in Maine, and it doesn't get much worse than that, I don't think. <laughs> if we ever go to another church, I guess it's Alaska next, or Antarctica, or something like that. I can't stand the cold. But uh, well, we appreciate that. There's a small group here since we've joined Village Missions that has always prayed for us, and they send us stuff at Christmas, and we just appreciate everything. We, we love you guys, and... Uh, we always consider this, even though we're at our third church, this is our home church, and we love coming back here. We, we kind of rotate from here to going up to Fort Kent, Maine, which is the same distance, even though we live in Maine. Uh, Dan and Peggy still live just as far as when we lived in New York to come here to Maryland. So they live at the tippy top of Maine where no man should live. <laughs> and I don't think anybody actually lives up there. Anyway, I just wanted to uh, share with you this morning, uh, it's the new year, and uh, Rosh Hashanah is the Jewish New Year, and sort of just uh, teach and glean through that for us as believers. And if you're like me, you probably make some uh, resolutions every year. Uh, Mine typically is to lose weight, as you can see, it never works. (laughs) I I found my last five-year resolution... So I'm going to just share them with you, a little personal insight. 2014, I will get my weight down uh, below uh, 300 pounds. 2015, I will follow my new diet religiously until I get below 250 pounds. 2016, I'm going to develop a realistic attitude about my weight. 2017, I'm going to work out just about every day. 2018, it's going to be, I will try, try to drive past the gym at least once a week <laughs> and eat fewer cookies. A new year is appealing, I believe, because all of us like a fresh start. We all like a new beginning. This is why we make resolutions. We all have things that we want to resolve and improve upon uh, with our lives. We all understand that we're probably not going to do uh, the best that we can, but we're going to try to do it. We look back at each year and say we have areas that we'd like to improve, whether that's personal goals, whether that's relationships with one another. And hopefully as Christians, we have uh, spiritual goals, you know, with our relationship uh, with God. Um, Now, Jonathan Edwards, he's probably uh, one of the greatest preachers, at least in New England, in the area that we're at now that there ever has been. And he's famous if you ever took a American Lit class, you probably had to uh, read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he had his resolutions uh, published. And there's a lot of them, and I'm not going to read all of them. But Edwards took his sanctification perhaps more seriously than any Christian ever has. As a matter of fact, in his sort of preamble, he vowed that he was going to resolve to be the most perfect Christian out of all the Christians that lived during his Time. He thought if there ever would be a perfect Christian, it was going to be he, even though he understood that that was an impossibility 
as far as uh, perfection or, or holiness, this side of heaven apart from God. And I don't want to read all of his resolutions, but I encourage you to because as you go into a new year, it really is something that has encouraged me to kind of read through Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. And know with each one, he begins with the word resolved in the past tense because in his mind it says, good is done. But his, pre, his sort of uh, preamble begins like this. He says, be insensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help. I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. So clearly, Edwards understood that sanctification was not possible apart from the power of God and that he was humanly unable to accomplish anything pleasing to God which was outside of the will of God. So listen to just a few that I pulled out of his resolutions. One of them, he says, Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolved to study the Scripture so steadily and constantly and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the saints. Resolved to ask myself at the end of every day, week, month, and year wherein I could possibly in any respect have done better. Resolved never to give over nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruption, however unsuccessful I may be. Resolved after afflictions to inquire what I am the better for them, what good I have got by them, and what I might have got by them. And I, I pray that my desires and seriousness of trying to please God might even remotely resemble and come close to Jonathan Edwards. What a godly man and pastor he was. Most of us make resolutions that are personal. They're, they're earthly and therefore they're just a temporary benefit. Edwards' resolutions are ones that have their focus not on mere earthly benefit, but on the eternal as well. His concerns, not his body, nearly as much as it is his soul. And as we come into this new year, we consider the resolutions, hopefully, that please God and produce health within our soul. And so the Jewish people have a New Year celebration as well. As I said, uh, this past year it celebrated was celebrated on September the 20th. It is a festival referred to as Rosh Hashanah, also known as the Feast of Trumpets. And this morning I just... As we think about this new year, I want to explore uh, their Jewish new year, Rosh Hashanah, from a biblical perspective and kind of glean things from it which are both instructive and maybe beneficial for us as believers. Rosh Hashanah is celebrated on the first month of Tishri, which typically occurs somewhere between the end of September to the first of October. And the name literally means head of the year or first of the year in the Hebrew. Rosh Hashanah falls in the month of Tishri, which is the seventh, seventh month in the Hebrew calendar, not the first month. We're celebrating our new year in January, the first month. So why do they do that? Why call it the new year if it's celebrated in the seventh month? Well, the reason is because the Hebrew calendar begins with the month of Nisan, which that's when they believe they were freed from Egypt. But the month of Tishri is believed to be that month, month in which God created the world. And so another way to think about Rosh Hashanah and, and, and why they consider it the head or first of the year is that in the Jewish mind it commemorates the creation of the world, thus the new year. And this is why if you look at a Jewish calendar with today's date on it, 
you'll read that it, the year says 5778, not 2017 like our year, because the Jewish people would say that this year, 5778, this is the 5778th year since God created all things. The biblical precept for the Jewish New Year can be found in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 24 and 25. And here's what we read there. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, On the first day of the seventh month, you are to have a day of Sabbath rest, a sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blasts. Do no regular work, but present a food offering to the Lord. So then ever since that was written in the book of Leviticus, which would have been somewhere between 1440 and 1400 B.C., this holiday has been celebrated every year to this very day, as well as in other Jewish communities throughout the world. Rosh Hashanah is considered the beginning of the Jewish high holy days, and it lasts actually for two days, even though they refer to it as one long day. And then immediately following that feast, you have what is known in the English as the Days of All, which lasts for 10 days. And that's followed by Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. So altogether, this Jewish New Year, this time is an extremely important moment of reflection for those that practice Judaism. It's so special, in fact, that Rosh Hashanah is the only Jewish holiday that is observed for two days by every Jew in not just Israel, but in all lands. It's also the only major holiday that falls on a new moon. The Mishnah refers to Rosh Hashanah as the day of judgment, and it's believed that God opens up the book of life, and on this day, he decides who is going to live and who is going to die in that year. The days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which are referred to as the days of all, are viewed as an opportunity for all Jews to repent so that they make out well in the next year, you know. If they, they do all these different religious things to try to sort of attract God to show them some sort of favor. They have just this 10-day window during his feast. Traditionally, they would gather in synagogues. They'd have an extended service. They'd follow the liturgy from a special prayer book called a Masor. And that is used, what they use during these days of all. At spe- specific times... Throughout the service, a shofar or ram's horn is blown. The mitzvah, or the commandment to hear the shofar, serves as a literal and spiritual wake-up call, and it's, it's special just to this Jewish feast. Even though the shofar is not blown today at any Jewish festival, it's still blown at Rosh Hashanah. It's blown for a total of 100 notes, 100 different notes. It all means something different. It's kind of like an alarm going off with no snooze button. So think about what Rosh Hashanah is to those in Judaism. It's their understanding that at the beginning of the creation of the world, they're considering the creation, they're remembering Adam's fall, and that's the reason that they have this sin imputed to them, and that somehow they know that before they die, the sin has to be atoned for. And this could be the year that they end up six feet under. And so they do all they can. During this two-day festival, the concept is, is, is constantly being meditated upon. Every time they hear that, that trumpet sound, they know it's getting closer. The hundredth trumpet is coming. It's sounding as an alarm or an, a warning to them. Ever since I was a small boy, I grew up here. I'm not a chicken necker. I grew up here, 
And I, my great-grandparents lived on Taylor's Island. Does anybody know where Taylor's Island, Maryland is? And Doria, Roger, some of the ones that came down with us. Uh, and that's about all that knows it's there. And it literally is a place that time has forgotten. And uh, it hasn't changed much, really, to this very day. Actually, it's gotten worse because the only gas pump is, has been taken out. But it's in Dorchester County. I don't know which road it is, but you take it and go to the very end, and you end up on this island called Taylor's Island. Ever since I was a little boy, as you ride around the island, you have these big sirens uh, all over the, you know, you don't have to go too far before you hit another siren. And the reason it's there is because right across the Chesapeake Bay is Calvert Cliffs. And you know what Calvert Cliffs is, right? It's a nuclear plant. So if those sirens go off, I mean, they're not escaping. They're not going anywhere. They're doomed. But I guess it's a nice uh, a nicety to say, you're about to die. Because, <laughs> I mean, you can't dig water because two, two feet down you hit water. So I don't know what they're planning to do. Maybe retreat to Cambridge. but So... That's kind of how the uh, shofar is. You know, they, they go, it goes off in inter- intervals. It's telling people that you better get ready because the end of the year is coming. God's making his decisions based on whether you're going to die, based on how this year is going to go f- uh, for you. And so they're doing all these different religious things to try to somehow earn God's favor and appease God. And following that... 10 days, it really comes to a head in this Day of Atonement, that one day where they just hope and they pray, I hope I did enough to earn God's favor. If they didn't, it was not going to be a good year for them, or worse, they might die. One tradition on the Day of Atonement, known as Kaparat, was for each head of the family to buy a live fowl, a chicken usually, and they just wave it over their head and recite a prayer. The idea of the prayer is that this bird you were about to sacrifice would become an atonement for you and your sin. Then you would slaughter the fowl, you'd give it to the poor in hopes that your charitable work would help towards your atonement for your sin, because at the end of that day, what's done is done. At the end of this day, the Jewish people believe that God closes the books and your fate is literally sealed for the year. That's kind of scary, if you ask me. In fact, a common greeting during this time of the year, uh, when you pass another Jewish worshiper the exchange would be may you be inscribed and sealed for a good year and what's odd to me is that no work is to be permitted on Rosh Hashanah so much so that the shofar is not blown if the holiday falls on the Sabbath yet the great irony is the entire Jewish nation is feverishly working for those 10 days for their salvation and as anyone who understands scripture knows this is not where atonement for sin is found It's only found in Jesus Christ. Listen to what Oswald Chambers wrote in relation to atonement. He said, We trample the blood of the Son of God if we think we are forgiven because we're sorry for our sins. The only explanation for the forgiveness of God and for the unfathomable depth of His forgetting is the death of Jesus Christ. Our repentance is merely the outcome of our personal realization of the atonement which He has worked out for us. It does not matter who or what we are. There is absolute reinstatement into God by the death of Jesus Christ and by no other way. Not because Jesus Christ pleads, but because he died. It's not earned, but accepted. All the pleading which deliberately refuses to recognize the cross is of no avail. 
It is a battering at a door other than the one that Jesus has already opened. Our Lord does not pretend we are all right when we are all wrong. The atonement is a propitiation whereby God, through the death of Jesus, makes an unholy man holy. It's always been amazing to me the richness of what we see symbolically through so many of the Jewish feasts and, and how they just kind of miss it just a little bit. And Rosh Hashanah is no different. If we look at three of the most important things that happened during this uh, uh, three-day, two-day festival, we're going to see a few things. The, the first thing is something they do on day one. It's a ceremony that's referred in the Hebrew as the Tashlik. And during this time, at some point, an individual is going to go down to a river. You see the more modern will find a wishing well or something. But typically, they'll go down to a river and they'll empty their pockets. Now, what, what most every Jewish person will do is they'll make sure they got bread in their pockets. And the reason is that leaven, as we know in, in, through the Gospels, it's often represented as sin. And so this act is symbolic of the Jewish person taking care of their own sin personally. In their minds, this process, which will last for 13 days, begins simply by reaching into their pockets, taking out the bread, and casting it upon the water. Now, if that were just symbolism, that would be rich symbolism in relation to our sin. But it's, not, it's so much more than symbolic when it comes to Judaism. It's the religious act that earns you God's favor. Jesus says, I am the only one that can atone for your sin. And they're saying, no thanks, we got this ourselves. We'll do it ourselves. And I believe there's a lot of irony in that they cast out bread because we see bread represented uh, in a few other different ways through Scripture. One way is bread is often symbolic of the Word of God. In Matthew 4, 4, we read this. Jesus answered, it's written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so in my mind, a more accurate symbol here, as they pull out the bread and they cast it away, is they're casting and rejecting God's Word as they throw it in the river. The second thing that we see is bread is symbolic of Jesus himself. As Jesus was about to celebrate the Passover, which is another Jewish holiday, during a different time, he's with his disciples and he takes that bread, as we all know, probably, Pastor Larry probably says this at some point during communion. Luke twenty two nineteen, it says, and he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so another symbolic gesture I see here in this Toshlik is that the Jewish people are, in a sense, casting away Christ in favor for their man-made religion. Jesus said, here's my body. I'm giving this to you. I'm going to die for you. It's going to be broken. And Judaism and many other religions say, no thanks. We're going to do this ourselves because we think we have a better way. Third metaphor that has to do with that communion is the idea of the body of Christ, but uh, the fact that he is returning again. When we participate in communion, one reason we do it is that as a church, we remember that not only are we looking back at that moment that Christ uh, died on the cross for our sins and he rose again from the dead, uh, thus redeeming us, and not only do we look inwardly at ourselves and, and, and uh, take care of our sin before God before we celebrate communion, but a third thing that we do is we look forward. So we look backward, inward, and forward. And what do we look forward to? Well, we look forward to that time that Jesus is returning for his church. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, what? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's coming back. To the Judaizer, there is no proclamation of the Lord because 
In their way of thinking, he was simply a good man. He wasn't a savior. He did not die for their sin, nor could he. And there's no reason to think that he's ever coming back or being raised from the dead. And so in this atonement process, what you begin to see is that in in so many symbolic ways, as the bread uh, is being thrown back into the water, they're, they're rejecting Christ through their religion. So then what do they do on day two? Well, on the second day, it is customary to eat of a new fruit in order to thank God for the provision in the new season. And typically, the fruit that is utilized in this ceremony is a pomegranate. According to rabbinic legend, a pomegranate contains 613 seeds, one seed for every mitzvah or every rabbinical law. So again, there's this constant reminder of the law, even in the fruit that they are partaking in on day two. And it's just an old fruit. It's not a new fruit. It symbolizes their dependency on the work of the law for their salvation. One of the prayers ends with a phrase which really reveals, I think, the heart of religion. The follower would partake of the pomegranate, and as they're doing that, they pray this prayer. They say, but penitence, prayer, and good deeds can annul the severity of the decree. You and I know that's not the case. And in a sense, they do too, because following that prayer, there's a second prayer spoken, one that concedes that religion alone doesn't work, that what they're doing really is not beneficial, because their second prayer goes like this. Our Father, our King, answer us as though we have no deed to plead our cause. Save us with mercy and love and kindness. Essentially, they're praying, God, we cannot do this in and of ourselves. We know that. We know that everything that we have done is pretty much useless. So we're leaning on your mercy and loving kindness and your grace. And God has always desired to give to his people this love and kindness, this Hebrew word hasid, this covenant faithfulness that God has for his people. His desire is to save them. And according to Romans 11, one day he will towards the end of all time. But the nation of Israel has a record of rejecting God's provision and disobeying the conditional covenants that he makes with them. Now, in relation to the heavenly bread, the manna sent to Israel by God for their provision during that wilderness journey, do you remember what they did there? They disobeyed the rules sometimes set by God surrounding how much they're to gather. They complained about it, and then they essentially rejected even the heavenly bread as well, the manna. They said they'd rather go back to Egypt, they'd rather go back to slavery and eat the slave food because they loved it there. And nothing changed as we come into the New Testament, even to this very day. God has given them the only bread that they need, Jesus Christ, and yet they still reject him in order to remain on a diet of slavery that's found in the law. Listen to what Jesus says to his people in John 6, verses 30 through 33. He says, John records, so they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is a bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Like God's physical provision in the wilderness, Jesus would be all that his people would need spiritually to atone for their sin. And Jesus comes and he dies for their sin. And in a symbolic way, they reach their hands in their pocket and they take the bread and they just cast it and toss it aside. And they say, we're going to do this ourselves. 
Jesus is going to later say in John 6, 35, again, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And yet today there's so many that hunger and thirst for more. A lot of people go into each new year looking for that one thing that they can change, that one thing that they believe will just improve their lives, that one person who's going to make them happy somehow, that one job that's going to give them security, you know, and and fulfill all the goals that they have in their life. And Jesus is right there saying, I'm all the provision that you need. During this Jewish New Year, the ram's horn, that shofar, it blows 100 times. And what do we say the purpose was? It's sounding as a constant alarm and warning to the people of God. A good passage that highlights the usage of that in the Old Testament is found in Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 1 through 6. Here's what Ezekiel records. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, When I bring the sword against the land, and the people of the Lord choose one of their men and make him their watchman, and he, says the sword, and he sees the sword coming against the land and blows a trumpet to warn the people. Then if anyone hears the trumpet but does not heed the warning and the sword comes and takes their life, their blood will be on their own head. Since they heard the sound of the trumpet but did not heed the warning, their blood will be on their own head. If they had heeded the warning, they would have saved themselves. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and he does not blow the trumpet to warn the people, and the sword comes and takes someone's life, that person's life will be taken because of their sin. But I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. Two warnings here, both related to the watchman. The man who would stand on the wall uh, of the city, on a tower typically, or sometimes pace the walls, depending on what kind of city it was. And he'd look out on the horizon, he'd look for danger, and he would announce when danger was coming, by blowing a trumpet in order to warn the people. And the first thing God says to the watchman is this. If you see the danger and you warn the people and they don't pay attention, that's on them. They're still going to suffer the consequences of that sword. However, the second warning to the watchman is that if you see danger approaching and you don't tell the people, guess what? The consequences for them is still the same. They're responsible even though they haven't heard the warning, but... God also holds someone else responsible too, doesn't he? Who else is responsible is the one who decided not to blow the shofar and warn of the danger that comes. Let me ask you folk, folks who know the gospel and receive Christ this, do you see the danger coming in this world? If you do, you have a responsibility. I believe God will hold us accountable as his people. Israel had heard the prophetic warnings for centuries, and as the Jewish individuals are trying to earn their salvation as the shofar is blowing time and time again, sounding that warning behind them. Each time, just that haunting blare of the horn, saying, hurry up, you better do something, you better do something. And they're feverishly working to kind of get ready for God coming, trying to appease Him, trying to make atonement for their sins. And they're doing this, and, 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 and they're never going to please God. And the, the irony is, who's going to be their judge? Well, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4 in the first half of verse 1 S. He says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, Jesus Christ will be the judge that every individual who has ever lived will stand before. We will all stand before him. And look, it's not going to go well for us if we reject the one who is the judge, right? 
The Jews feared death. They fear that eternal separation for God. They're trying to do all that they can to earn his favor, but they cannot achieve grace. It can only be received. The very grace and loving kindness that the Jewish people are pleading for could be found in the very one that God sent to them a little over 2,000 years ago. It's not found in religion, religious acts, religious prayers, or any other religion. It can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his finished work. It's always Jesus plus absolutely nothing. And after declaring himself to be the very bread of life, Jesus said what in verse 40 in that same passage in John 6? He said, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And considering these trumpets, it is interesting as you come to the book of Revelation, there are shofars, there are trumpets that are, that are sounding throughout the book of Revelation. But that's going to be the last time we're going to hear them. In Revelation, each time a trumpet blasts, judgment comes immediately. Because though God is a merciful God and though God is a loving God, the time of judgment is coming. The time of warning is going to one day be over. And at, as, at the end of Revelations, the warning we see there in Revelations 20.15. John records this. He says, nothing impure will ever enter it. The subject's heaven there. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Remember, the Jewish people are worried about these books. Who enters heaven? Well, only those whose names are written in one book, the Lamb's book of life. And how does that happen? Well, Jesus, who is that Lamb, makes it pretty clear in John fourteen six. He says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. He says, no one, absolutely no one comes to the Father except what? Through me. Jesus says that no one can go to heaven but through him. In the same kind of way that Jesus refers to himself later or earlier as a gate in John 10. You can't work for atonement or salvation because the work's already been finished by the only one who could have done it, God himself. God the Son, according to Paul in Philippians 2, he lays down all his glory in heaven. And as we just celebrated, he comes down, he clothes himself in the flesh, he becomes that second Adam, as Paul says in Romans 5. He's born without sin, just like Adam, but unlike Adam, he remains sinless is the entirety of his life. He is crucified an innocent man for you and for me. He's raised from the dead three days later. And as he said, all who come to, through him to the Father will be raised up in the last day at that final trumpet. And while religion calls you to save yourself through your sacraments or through man's laws or some other way, all one has to do is repent and turn to Christ and trust in his finished work. What happens if you don't? Revelations twenty-one twenty-seven talks about the book again. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Is that what God desires for you and eternity in hell? Absolutely not. Jesus says that hell was originally created for Satan and the third of the angels that followed him in his rebellion. The reality, however, is that people do go there. The reality, according to the Bible, is that not everyone goes to heaven. And so while during the Jewish New Year, God's people feverishly scramble to swing chickens over their heads and empty their pockets of bread down by the river and pay penance and temple taxes to the priests and offer up worthless sacrifices 
and useless prayer, Jesus stands there and says, stop it. Just trust me. The work is done. While a child at one point during a Passover feast opens a door, invites Elijah into a chair that they've reserved, an empty chair. Every year they do this. Jesus is standing there saying, I stand at the door and I knock. You see, it isn't about a new year because our years never end. Every year, and you know this the older you get, it's just a cycle. The same thing happens every single year. It can become monotonous. Some things happen good, some things happen bad. But there will be that year when the cycle stops and we breathe our last and we stand before our judge. The author of Hebrews says it's appointed unto man once to die and then immediately judgment. And then, and then what? Where will we be? Alan Peterson said this. He said, I read about a small boy who was constantly late coming home from school. His parents warned him one day that he must be home on time that afternoon, but nevertheless, he arrived later than ever. His mother met him at the door and said nothing. At dinner that night, the boy looked at his plate. There was a slice of bread and a glass of water. He looked at his father's full plate, and then he looked at his father, but his father remained silent, and the boy was crushed. The father waited for the full impact to sink in, and he quietly took the boy's plate and placed it in front of himself. He took his own plate full of meat and potatoes and put it in front of the boy, and he smiled at his son. When that boy grew up to be a man, he said, All my life, I've known what God is like by what my father did that night. Paul puts it a a different way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Spurgeon referred to that as a great exchange so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you have never understood the truth of the gospel, you've never repented of your sin and trusted and turned to Jesus Christ for your salvation, I pray today would be that day because one day the trumpets stop. One day we breathe our last and then we stand before the judge who can be your redeemer. If you do know Christ, I pray that this will be the year that like Jonathan Edwards, each one of us would vow to be the best Christian out of all the Christians on the earth in our time. And that we earnestly commit to do the will of the Father in heaven drawn close to him through our study of his word, through our commitment to prayer, and the fellowship of the saints as we all serve him together as a church. And may we together be the watchmen of our generation as we sound the warning while at the same time holding up Christ and the good news of the gospel, which is able to bring salvation to all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for grace, Lord, whether it's that word hasid in the Old Testament or caress in the Greek, the idea that, Lord, it is unmerited favor. We, we look to Rosh Hashanah and we see the whole nation, your, your chosen people, Israel the elect, and we see them doing all kind of crazy things, trying to earn your favor, trying to earn atonement for their sin. And Lord... All the while, Jesus stands right there and knocks. And Father, it's it's no more crazier with other religions. Lord, there's a lot of religions that do a lot of different things that somehow they believe that that's going to help with their salvation at the very least. And yet, 
It's Christ plus nothing. We, we exchange, as Paul wrote there in 2 Corinthians 5, we exchange the absolute worst of us for the very best and perfection of him. And that's how we can stand before him. Lord, I pray everyone here is in Christ. And if they're not, I pray that your Holy Spirit would open up the eyes of their heart so that they might see. We love you. We thank you, Lord. Help us to uh, serve you even, even harder in the new year to come. And Lord, help us to just draw closer to you. We thank you for all these things. Thank you.